Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as many of you know, for the past four weeks, we have been in a series through the book of Jonah. And if you have never read the book of Jonah before, this series, and you are waiting until today to finish it out, like you came in here today, so I've, I'm three chapters in, don't know how this story ends, then I'm gonna say you're probably in for a little bit of a surprise, because this story does not end the way that you think it's going to. It's kind of got kind of a shocking twist here at the very end. But before we get into that, let's just do a quick review. Jonah was a prophet of God. I call him a reluctant prophet. God called him to go preach to the, to the Ninevites in the city of Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? He's like, I ain't going there. And he went and he sailed on a boat in the opposite direction. He was trying to go to Spain, which is about as far away from Nineveh as you could get. Well, somewhere out in the Mediterranean Sea, God does what? God sends a storm because God never took his eyes off Jonah. Even though Jonah ran away, thought he could get far away from God, God still found him. He sent a storm to get Jonah's attention. And on this ship, everybody thought they were gonna die. This is one of those we're all gonna die kind of storms. And Jonah finally fesses up. And he says, all the guys on the boat, he said, I, we are in this mess because of me. Here's the solution. Throw me overboard. And so that's what they did. Jonah gets eaten by a big fish. The seas calm down. And all the sailors on that ship, they praise God. For the next three days, Jonah is inside the belly of the fish. He has three days to really contemplate and think about his life and what it's all about and who he's all gonna live for. And, and all, he does some real soul searching and he comes clean before God. And he, and he says, I will go and do what I vowed I would do. So when that happens, the, 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 the fish, what's it, it vomits Jonah out onto the shore. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. Same command as before, go and preach to the city of Nineveh. This time Jonah goes right away and he preaches. And so for several days, he teaches all about what's gonna happen. In 40 days, God is gonna destroy all of you. But then something happens that nobody saw coming, not Jonah, and, and for us, is the first time we read through it. We didn't see this coming. All the Ninevites, they repented. When, when God saw this, if we look at the very last verse of chapter three, chapter three, verse 10, it says, when God saw this, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So as these Ninevites, as they changed their ways, God changed his mind. They put on sackcloth and ashes and showed great remorse before God. Then he's like, all right, I won't destroy you now. You know, we could honestly end the story right there and we would all praise God for that. You go, what an incredible story of repentance and God's grace and compassion and we would all praise God for it. But there's just a little bit more to this story because there's just a little bit more about God's grace and God's compassion that he wanted Jonah to see and I think wants us to see. This is the part of the story where it would be kind of tempting to say, you know, chapter four doesn't really apply to us that much. This is something happening between God and Jonah. But I would argue that chapter four has more to do with us and God than the previous three chapters that we've been through so far. Chapter four has something very significant to teach us today. And if we have ears to hear, you will hear it today. So in chapter three, we learned that God had compassion on these Ninevites. He did not destroy them. And then in chapter four, verse one, here's Jonah's response to God's decision. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, why do you suppose Jonah was angry? 
Because here's how it started. Jonah was very angry. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, if you think about it purely from a practical point of view, Jonah is a prophet of God. He is sent by God to deliver a message. And you would hope that as a prophet of God, that that message would be received. And from a particularly practical point of view, they got the message. He preached, they responded accordingly. And I can tell you, as a preacher, that is a very big deal. You want people to understand what you're talking about. Nothing's worse than to be on the car ride home and you look at your spouse and say, did you understand what the preacher was talking about? No, I didn't either. I was totally lost. Of course, that never happens here, of course. But you know, sometimes, no. You know, as a preacher, you want people to understand what you're trying to say. And from Jonah's point of view, he was very effective. They understood. There was no miscommunication. And they had an incredible response. They got that message. It's interesting. Jonah is not angry at the Ninevites right now. Now, he doesn't like them. There's, that's no secret. But his anger is not directed at their response. Who is his anger directed towards? He's angry at God, isn't he? He is absolutely angry at God. And I've tried to figure out why would Jonah be so angry at God? I think there's a number of reasons. I think one of the reasons, at least in part, it has something to do with the fact that Jonah believes these people deserve destruction. They, they deserve it. They're evil people. And now you're not going to do it. And I, I can see that had something to do with his anger. Maybe Jonah was a little bit angry because he had spent all this time telling the Ninevites that God is gonna destroy them and then all of a sudden God changes his mind and doesn't do it. So who looks like he has egg on his face? Jonah. Hey, I said this was gonna happen and now it's gonna, so maybe there's a little bit of that feeling in Jonah. Maybe it could come down to race. Jonah could look as like, they're the Assyrians for crying out loud. They're God's enemy. We hate these people. You know, I don't, why, rid, this is your opportunity, God. Rid the earth of them. We hate these people. They're nothing but a plague. I mean, there's no doubt that Jonah felt that way. So some of his anger might be wrapped up in that as well. But I think there's one significant reason that I could point to that really is at the heart of Jonah's anger towards God and, we'll, and that will become clear as we get deeper into this story. Jonah is offended at God's grace. Really would boil it down to, what's Jonah so mad about? He's offended because God has grace, because God has mercy, because God has compassion. And, and right here, we begin to understand what many would argue is Jonah's greatest flaw. He's angry and offended at grace. And I wonder, is there anybody in this room today that has ever been offended at God's grace? Think about it. Have you ever been offended at God's grace? Has somebody hurt you at some point in your life? I mean, they, they really hurt you. They did you wrong. But then later, that person would go on to surrender their heart to Jesus Christ, and you're like, what gives? No, 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 you don't get the same reward that I do. No, 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 God doesn't love people like you. God must have not seen what you did to me and how you hurt me. This changes nothing. You can say you love God all you want, this changes nothing. Am I supposed to love and care about this person now? Have you ever been offended by God's grace? So if you look back at verse one again, this seemed very wrong 
to Jonah. There's something about what God is doing that just feels so wrong to Jonah, and he's angry about it. So he goes to his knees and he prays. Now just listen to this prayer that Jonah prays. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Have you ever started a prayer like that? Is it, did I call it? And then he goes on to say, that is why I tried to, for, why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarsus. I knew that you were, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Ends this prayer, where Jonah, I think, is being completely real and authentic before God. He is offended by God's grace. Not only that, his prayer reveals some of his original reasoning in chapter one for why he got on that ship and ran away from God. He just kind of puts it out there. This is why I, I left. And if I was to put Jonah's prayer into my own words, if I was gonna try to reshape his prayer to understand what he's trying to say, but kind of put it more for us today, I would write it this way. This is just me. He prays this to God. God, I knew you were gonna do this. I knew it, I called it. I knew it was gonna happen. And I said to myself, why should I go to all the trouble of traveling to Nineveh to deliver your message? Because you're just gonna show them grace and compassion anyway because that's the way you are. That's just how you operate and that's why I ran away. That's why I, the only decision I was left was to get on a boat and flee and get out of there because you were gonna do this and in my opinion, God, they don't deserve it but I knew you were gonna spare them and that's why I ran and I'm just so over this, God. I'm tired of being your prophet. I'm tired of being your spokesman so just do away with me. Kill me now. I'd rather die than go through this again. If you ask me, that's what Jonah's really praying. He's just pouring it out there. And I'll be honest with you, Jonah's prayer, his anger, it confuses me. Now, I, I do acknowledge that I am living many years later and I've got a complete scripture. I got to see what Jesus did and his plan for mankind. We have the complete revelation of God. It's called the Bible. Jonah didn't have that whole complete picture. But even still, his anger towards God confuses me. And here's on the level it confuses me. Wasn't Jonah the rebellious one at the beginning of the story? Now, the Assyrians, obviously rebellious, they're wicked, they hated God, but didn't this story start off by Jonah being that? Wasn't he the rebellious one? Wasn't Jonah the one who God rescued and delivered? Wasn't that Jonah? Wasn't that part of his story? Well, wasn't Jonah the one who got a do-over? And now he's all upset that the Ninevites get an opportunity to have a do-over? Wasn't Jonah, wasn't he the original recipient of God's grace and mercy? And now he's all upset that the Ninevites get that as well. I, I take a step back and I'm going, Jonah, you received what the Ninevites are receiving. How can you be so mad that God is treating you both in the same way? So his anger kind of confuses me just a little bit. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? If you've never read that story in the Bible, it's a story that Jesus told about a father whose son came to him one day and said, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. I demand that you give it to me. I wanna go live my own life. And Jesus tells his story, he's like, and the father obliged. He gave him half 
of his wealth, what he would receive once the father dies. This is in Luke chapter 15, and if you've never read that, you need to do that before you go to bed tonight. So this son, he takes off to a distant land, and it's only when he is homeless, penniless, and friendless does he come to his senses and realize what terrible mistake he had made, and he decides to go home in humility. And he, and he says to himself, I can never be a son again, but maybe my father will allow me to serve in his household and be a servant or something like that. And so the son starts to come home, and the story is just is this dramatic story. It's one of the most dramatic stories in the Bible, where the father is a long way off, and he sees his, co- his son coming home. And he's been watching for his son to come home. And as the son is coming up the road, the father runs to the son, embraces him, throws him a party, puts on the new clothes, and he welcomes his son home with open arms. Well, see, here's how we're supposed to understand that. In this story... The father is actually a representation of God. And the prodigal son is a representation of every single person who's ever lived. And how we need to come back and repent and come to our father. It's, a, it's an incredible story. It tells us something very significant about how God feels about people. And what he highly values. Well, there's another part of that story. There's another brother now, now this brother's, he's the one that never rebelled. He's the brother that always did what his father asked. He's the brother that probably just looked down in shame at his other brother for doing what he did. But he is not happy. He doesn't want to go to the party. He challenges his father on his grace. And his father, he doesn't know why his son's so upset. He said, my son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. Let's celebrate. And the older brother's like, fooey on all of you. Because the older brother was offended by his father's grace and mercy. And Jonah is like that older brother in the story. I don't like them coming back to you, God. They don't deserve it. No, 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 no. Give them what they deserve. They don't deserve your compassion. Jonah's just like the older brother and the prodigal son. Are you familiar with the, the, the parable, another parable that Jesus told called the parable of the vineyard workers? Are you familiar with that one? In the parable of the vineyard workers, um, you have a landowner who went out into the town square to hire people to work in his field. And so he says, you come work for me today and I'll pay you a day's wage. And then a few hours later, he goes out and he, he gets some more workers. And then about halfway through the day, he goes and gets some more workers. And then about you know, halfway through the afternoon, he goes out and gets more workers. And then when there's only an hour of daylight left, he goes out and gets more workers. And at the end of the day, he, this landowner, he lo- lines up all of his employees, all the workers for that day, and he starts with the guys that had only worked one hour, and he pays them a full day's wage. And then he goes to people that only work for part of the day, full day's wage. And, and the, the guys that have worked all day, they're, they're talking amongst themselves, oh my goodness, if he's given those guys a full day's wage for only doing so little, what is he gonna give us? And then he finally makes his way down to the guys that had worked all day long, that had bore the hottest part of the day and had given their whole day to this field. And he gives them a day's wage and they're upset. And they start to grumble against the landowners. Like, that's not fair. How could you give the guys that was only here for an hour the same amount of money that you gave us that were here all day? And the landowner looks at them and he says, are, are you upset with me because I'm generous? Don't I have a right to do with my own money what I want to do? Listen, you, you got the reward that we talked about. Why are you upset because I'm generous? 
And the landowner in that story is like God. And unfortunately, the guys that worked all day, they're kind of like Jonah. They don't deserve the full reward. They shouldn't get what I get. I've done everything right. It's not fair. And this is Jonah. It's that idea of being offended by God's grace, offended by God's generosity. I'm the one that deserves it, not them. And so Jonah reminds me of the older brother. He reminds me of the guys that have worked all day in the field. And you know who else Jonah reminds me of? Jonah sometimes reminds me of me when I'm at my worst. Offended by God's grace. And when those attitudes creep up inside of me and maybe creep up inside of you, and it's like, ah, that's not fair. How about the guy that's spending the rest of his life in prison because he murdered and raped some people And when they're laying him down on that deathbed and they're gonna end his life because that's the punishment of his crimes. And he says before he dies that I've been forgiven by God. In prison I found the Lord and he has forgiven me of my sins and I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm so sorry for the people I've hurt, but God loves me and he's forgiven me and I look forward to spending eternity with my heavenly father and we're like... Not right. God, did you miss what he did? Did you somehow turn a blind eye to all the people that he hurt? And how can he now claim that you have forgiven him? And no, 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 not him. Have you ever been offended by God's grace? Just that little bit of judgmental spirit inside of us that says they don't, deserve heaven. And if we're all being completely honest with ourselves, who, who is that one person in your life right now? Who comes to your mind right now who you would say, if you were just being honest, they don't deserve heaven? Mm-mm, not fair. And, and, and if you got that person then you're, you're tasting just a little bit of what Jonah is feeling. Offended by God's grace. This is not fair. You shouldn't do this, God. You should go ahead and destroy them like you said. Bill Hybels, who is the founding pastor of Willow Creek Community Church up in Chicago, a huge church, he famously said this, and I believe with all my heart. He says, we have never locked eyes with somebody that Jesus didn't die for. Now just think about that. We have never locked eyes with somebody that Jesus didn't die for. So what that means is that when you're scanning your groceries at the grocery store and that cashier smiles back at you and you lock eyes with with he or her, Jesus died for that person. Your neighbor who lets their dog out to poop on your yard every day, (laughs) Jesus died for them too. It's that waitress or waiter at your favorite restaurant Jesus died for them too. Your children's teachers, Jesus died for them. The the parents of the kids that play on your kids' sports teams, Jesus died for them. You know that boss of yours that never has a kind word to say about you or or your performance at work? Jesus died for them. You know, the dozens of people that you're surrounded by every day you go to the gym that put their headphones on and block out the world? Jesus died for every last one of them. 
because we've never locked eyes with somebody that Jesus didn't die for. I'm gonna guess that many of us have been inside Razorback Stadium at some point in our lives. If my numbers are correct, there's 76,000 people that they can cram into that stadium. 76,000 people. Now, it's been a while since we had 76,000 people in there, to be quite honest with you. But I believe we're heading the right direction. <laughs> Gotta have faith. 76,000 people you can cram inside this stadium. Do you realize that's still 44,000 people less than who lived in Nineveh? Then I'll just let that sink in for a minute. The Bible talks about there's 120,000 people who live in the city of Nineveh and, and, and God describes them as people that don't know their left hand from their right hand. And 120,000 people, they together repented of their sins, put on sackcloth and ashes, and they turned from their evil ways, and God had compassion on 120,000 people, and Jonah was angry about it. Jonah's response is, I'd rather die than for them to get saved. And so in verse four, God has a question for Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, in Scripture, Jonah doesn't answer. There is no record of him answering that question. God just challenges Jonah, is it, is it right for you to be angry? And I think that question, what God is doing, is he's setting Jonah up to talk about something very important, but basically God wants Jonah to see what God sees. God is with this question, and what happens next, is challenging Jonah's wrong attitude and his outlook. At the heart of of this question lies Jonah's inability or maybe his unwillingness to see the people of Nineveh the same way that God sees them. They're looking at the world through two separate lenses. I heard about uh, a guy walking down the street and he saw his neighbor trying to wrestle uh, by himself a washing machine in the doorway of his house. So he's like, I'll be a good neighbor, I'll go help him. And so the two of them got together and the neighbor thanked him. So, oh yeah, this is really a two-man job, thanks for your help. And for the next couple minutes, they could not get this washing machine to budge at all. And so after they had exhausted themselves trying to move this washing machine, they sit down and they're trying to catch their breath and they're like, man, I don't understand why this washing machine's not moving. And the neighbor said, man, at this rate, we're never gonna get this washing machine inside your house. And the guy's like, in? I'm trying to get it out. <laughs> Talk about two people not on the same page, working against each other. That is God and Jonah. They are not seeing this thing the same way. And God wants Jonah to come on to his side and to help him see the way God sees it and Really, there's a hardened attitude inside of Jonah that does not reflect God at all. There, there's something about God's grace that Jonah's gonna see. Look at verse five. So Jonah had gone and sat out, gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made a shelter and in its shade, and, and sat in shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So here's what we can assume at this point is that Jonah preached and there was an immediate response by the Ninevites. So this wasn't like, 40 days later, you know, while the clock was winding down and God is stroking the fire of his destruction. No, no, no. This happened immediately. So there is uh, repentance and God makes his decision, it seems, rather quickly. I will have compassion and Jonah letting you know I'm not gonna destroy them and this angers Jonah. So what we seem think happens is Jonah goes ahead out to the east side of the city and there he waits because maybe deep down inside Jonah's thinking this, this repentance thing won't last. This, hey, I'm following you now, God, 
it won't last. This sackcloth and ashes thing, they'll give up on it real soon. And maybe Jonah is thinking, listen, God, I know you're saying right now you're not gonna do it. (laughs) Give these people a little bit of time. And by the time this 40-day window is over, you're, you're gonna wanna destroy him. And so maybe Jonah has that attitude. It's hard to say for sure, reading into it just a little bit. But Jonah goes outside of the city and he waits, I think, to see what's gonna happen. Now, if you look at verse six, this is what happens next. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. You might have a translation that says a vine, but it's a leafy plant, leafy vine, and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Now, we get this impression, this is like a supernatural growth. This is like, you know, uh, miracle growth, you know, that God's like, boom, and this thing, this thing grows up big, and it shades Jonah. It's, a, it's an overnight growth. It's really kind of a miraculous thing, and I want you to see something in the text. It says, God provided. Now, does that sound familiar? If you go back to chapter one, when the fish was coming up to eat Jonah, what did it say? The Lord provided a great fish. So here we go again. The Lord provided um, a plant. Now just pay attention over the next few verses how many times we read the Lord provided. And so in Jonah, when this happened, he was very happy about the plant. Do you realize this is the first time in four chapters that Jonah is happy about anything? And it's all focused on this plant, this big plant that grew up and it eased his discomfort. It shaded him from the the, the hot sun and he was happy. So here I think, here you have Jonah. He's hanging out on the east side of the city. It's probably an elevated area, looking down on the city, waiting for the fireworks to fly by 40 days. And then this plant grew up and he is shaded by that and he is, is, is happy about it while he waits for God's demonstration of destroying Nineveh. What Jonah has no idea is that God's not gonna demonstrate anything by destroying Nineveh, but he has a demonstration planned just for Jonah and he doesn't see it coming. Look at verse seven. But at dawn the next day, God, here it is again, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind this is just God doing what Jonah already said. Remember what he told the sailors? I worship the God who's over the earth and the sea and everything. This is God just orchestrating things. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't make Jonah do anything. This is an interesting thing about God. God can control circumstances. God can orchestrate. He can ordain things to happen because he's God. But he won't make you love him. And he won't make you do things you don't want to do. This is the essence of free will, and this is a whole other conversation, but God's creating things around Jonah, but Jonah has to decide for himself, and in that, we're no different. So God provided a worm, the the plant died, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He was probably bald, it made it worse. And he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Do you kind of get this sense that maybe Jonah is just a little bit of a drama queen? Maybe just, maybe there's a little bit in there. But this shade plant that grew so quickly, it died just as quickly. You could say, here one day, gone the next. And when it was gone and Jonah's comfort had been removed, the shade was gone, God sends this scorching east wind. Some Bible scholars think that that wind is called the Sirocco wind, which is actually something, you can Google it, 
It's a, it's, a, it's a wind that blows out of North Africa and it goes across the Mediterranean Sea and it hits the Middle East and the humidity drops and it has little grains of sand in this wind and it's miserable if you're out in this thing. I don't know if it's that or not, but there is actually a thing called a Shiraka wind. Many think that maybe that's what God had punished Jonah. with, like nailed him with this wind. Anyway, he was miserable. I mean, the shade was gone. He's getting drilled by this wind. It's hot. It's like having a hair dry in your face with sand blowing on you. It's awful. And so bad, he's like, I wanna, I wanna die. I just wanna die. And when Jonah's at that moment, God asks him the same question as before. Look at verse nine. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? But this time, he's not talking about the Ninevites. He's talking about this plant. Because now, now Jonah's mad that the plant's gone. And, and God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And it, what did Jonah say? It is. It is right to be angry about the plant. It is. Jonah's like, absolutely, I have every right to be angry about the plant. And here comes God's point. Look at verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. Here's God's what he's saying. Jonah, you had nothing to do with that plant. It had everything to do about me. You didn't plant that thing. You didn't water it. You didn't tend it. You didn't love it. There was nothing that you did that made that happen. You have no personal attachment to that plant whatsoever, but you're so angry about it. You're, you're so angry about the destruction of this plant, but you feel nothing for the 120,000 people living in Nineveh who are lost. God knew each one of those 120,000 Ninevites by name. And here's the thing that just blows me away. It probably blows you away. And this is where we see Jonah in us at times is that it's a, it's a real revelation when, when we come to terms with the truth that God loves the wicked just as much as he loves the saved. It's an odd concept to come to, to wrestle with that God loves the wicked just as much as he loves the saved because God loves the whole world. He loves his creation. God wants every single person on this planet, no matter how far away from God they are right now, to come to repentance and salvation. And if they would, God would give it. And so God says, Jonah, you're so concerned about this plant, you had nothing to do with it. But you have no compassion, no concern for 120,000 people that I created, that I love, that you hate. And I think here's the bottom line that God is trying to get Jonah to see. He says, Jonah, you care more about your personal comfort and you're so self-centered. You care more about that than all these people that don't know me. And if that's not a message for the church today, I don't know what is. And his anger, Jonah's anger, would be laughable if it wasn't so familiar. Uh, Mark Mittenberg uh, co-authored a book one time called How to Become a Contagious Christian. It's a great book. It's, it's, it's a little bit dated now. Um, it's been out for, I think, about 25 years, but it's still an incredible read. And in that book, he says this, and just listen to what he writes. 
He said, most Christians are all for outreach and evangelism and reaching the lost for Christ until those people start taking our parking spots at church or sitting in our pew or bring kids who don't behave like we like, bring worship music that we don't relate to, and then our comfort becomes more important. We'd like to see the lost saved, but we'd rather they got saved somewhere else. I'll tell you, if we're not careful, church, we can run into the same trap, the same way of thinking that Jonah did, and you boil it down, all it is is this, we are offended at God's grace. And we can drift into this attitude of caring more about our personal comfort and what we like and what we want and what makes us happy. We can care more about those things than the multitude of people that need God's grace that right now don't know their left hand from their right hand who are completely lost. Do you know how easy it would be for us as a church family to just sit back and go, all right, we have arrived. Because let's all be honest, we got a pretty good thing going here at New Life, I think. We just sit back, this is good. We, we, we've made it, we've got, we've got plenty of people here and it's a good number and that's enough and I think if you let any more people in here, it's gonna ruin what we got. It's gonna mess this thing up. And I don't know, to me, this feels just right. We've got some great ministries happening here. We've got a great student ministry. We've got a children's ministry. We've got other ministries that minister the whole family. We've got great life groups. We've got, you know, we can point to things like, this, this feels good. I don't want this to ever change. I, uh, this fits me really good. Sundays are awesome around here. You might say, man, the worship, I, I love it. I love the energy. There's so many good things here. I, I learned so much about the Lord here. The fellowship is good. The coffee is good. The donuts are good. We just say, well, we made it. This is great. Now, I don't believe that that's the attitude of our church at all, but I will tell you this, that there, that is the attitude of thousands and thousands of Christians and thousands and thousands of churches all across our land that seem to turn inward and look and say, this is what I want, and we neglect to see what God wants. And you have churches and God that are just like those two neighbors trying to move the washing machine. We're not on the same page. There's not a person that you will ever lock eyes with on earth that Jesus didn't die for. There's not a one person you're ever gonna meet that Jesus didn't die for and who God doesn't deeply love. And the book of Jonah is over. And some of you are like, well, where's the next verse? Well, we just read it. It's all, it's over. I had somebody last night say, hey, where's chapter five? There is no chapter five. It just ends rather abruptly. We don't know what happened to Jonah. There's no more mention of him in scripture. We don't know if he ever got his head screwed on straight or not. We're left guessing what happened to Jonah? Now, here's my opinion. I could be dead wrong. I think God said his peace and left him in the desert. <laughs> I think so. I think Jonah sat there for 40 days and nothing happened. And I think that little hill on the east side of the city became his new belly of the fish. He sat there and contemplated what his life was really all gonna be about and what was really important. And my hope, my hope would be that Jonah came clean before God again. And he walked with God in step and on the same page again. 
But I'll be honest with you, this story really isn't about Jonah anymore, is it? This is really more about, about us. And the question that I would, I would leave on you today is this. Do we see the world like God sees the world? Do, do we look at the world and see loved ones and friends and neighbors and coworkers that are loved by God who need to experience God's grace? Do, do we see it like God sees it? As we've learned throughout this series, I hope many of us have come to terms with the fact that there are some things that God's gonna want you to do that you're not gonna wanna do. Some of you are gonna be tempted to jump on a boat and sail away figuratively because you think that you can run far enough and fast enough that God can't find you. And we've learned and we know this, there's nowhere you can go on earth that you can hide from God. He sees everything. Some of you maybe realize throughout this series, I think I'm on the wrong ship and I'm heading the wrong direction and I need to switch course here. Some of you could stand up here and tell incredible stories of how God has had to get your attention. You've got your own swallowed by a fish story. You've got your own worst nightmare story. And you've been on the other side now and you say, this is how God got my attention and he got me on the right path. Just like Jonah, God had to get his attention he had to come clean with God. And then God gave him incredible do-over. And there's not a one of us in this room that hasn't needed a do-over. But this is where our story splits from Jonah's story. Where Jonah got a do-over and he kind of went down the same old destructive path. But not us, friends. We got a do-over. God's graceful hand touched us. And this is where we choose to align ourselves with God. This is where we choose as a church family, we're gonna walk daily with our maker and we're gonna be all about his will, his desires, his priorities. And, and to have that attitude, it's like, God, you don't need to send a storm. I don't need a fish to get my attention. You have my attention. And I will obey and I will follow. Lord, this is where we split with Jonah and we have the mind of God from this point forward. If we can take these lessons away, then we have really learned something significant from this reluctant prophet who ran away from God.